Dr. Maxwell Cooper is a resident physician in training in diagnostic and interventional radiology at Emory. He is the host of the Da Vinci Hour podcast, where he interviews a variety of guests making an impact on healthcare, including myself and Mark Cuban, where they discussed his low-cost pharmacy business, Cost Plus Drugs. Pretty impressive uh, that he got that, and I didn't mention it in the interview, which is why I'm mentioning it now. Dr. Cooper is also the co-founder of the Da Vinci Academy, a company that provides video courses on YouTube, digital textbooks, and podcasts for medical students. We start off the conversation talking about how he developed these courses while he was a med student. Pretty enlightening how he did it and sourced some of the material. In addition to podcasting and medical education, Dr. Cooper is also passionate about medical device development, and, and that covered a lot of our conversation. He's currently part of a team of interventions radiologists at Emory and engineers at Georgia Tech working on an early stage dialysis access monitoring device. So we talked about what he learned about device development from his experience, like securing finances, intellectual property, and interacting with engineers. You can find his courses and podcast at dviacademy.com. That's dviacademy.com. And you can find him on LinkedIn and Instagram at Maxwell Cooper MD. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Maxwell Cooper, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Brad, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So you have quite a few irons in the fire. And so let's talk about the Da Vinci Academy first. What, what is the Da Vinci Academy? Yeah, so the Da Vinci Academy is, as I like to say, a multimedia medical education company. And so I say multimedia because we have some videos, we have podcasts, and then we have some digital books that go with it as well. So it's a company that makes materials mainly focused for medical students, but now that's kind of expanded beyond medical students. And so it was a business I started when I was a medical student, a third year medical student. And I was an anatomy tutor for three years and I grabbed my anatomy partner and we couldn't really find any good source. And I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate, Brad, that most books out there for anatomy are 1200 pages and very nuanced and uh, not too concise. And so we wrote a book that was much more concise, bolt puller, bullet point format and and with lots of images, you know, because as anatomists, as a surgeon, as radiologists, we like like to see things uh, in anatomy. And so then we made a video course to go with it. And we got a lot of positive feedback on that. So ever since then, we've done it for biochemistry. I'm sorry. So when you were a medical student, you and your anatomy lab partner, um, my, my actually my old anatomy lab partner listens to the show. So hey, doing <laughs> Josette. Um, so, uh, but you and your anatomy lab partner, you came, you wrote a book, you wrote an anatomy book. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it was written in outline format, but yeah, it was about a 300 page book. And I think we have over 150 images I want to say in it. Where did you get, where did you source the images? Cause I would think, unless you're like drawing them yourself, I think you run into issues with like copyright infringement. So what, what happens there? Yeah, so that's a great point. So thankfully, we used most of our images from the Gray's Anatomy textbook that was published in, I think, 1915. And it's one of those, as you know, it's over 100 years old. So I think it. And we uh, double-checked this and made sure, but it, the 
copyright on their on those images had expired and so they were kind of part of what's right. called not you think not you think you you know yes it has yes. just in case one of the listeners is like oh i had no idea awesome i'm going to use those images too so you're so because it's over 100 years or whatever whatever the uh, statute of limitations is has expired so there's no they no longer own dr gray dr meredith gray no longer <laughs> owns the the copyright to the pictures in the gray's anatomy you can just it's open source you can just use them yeah, that's correct. They're in the, in okay. the public domain. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, Sorry to interrupt. No, no worries. And then the radiology images we used, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, learnradiology.com, but that's run by a radiologist who I believe was the program director at Albert Einstein for a long time, but really nice guy, Dr. William Herring. He was very generous and let us use up to 30 of his images uh, cost-free, and we, we just provided attribution uh, to his uh, website and great learning resource. So that's that's where we got the images from for that. And then when we did it for biochemistry, you know, we were both biochem majors in undergrad. We both enjoyed it. And then for that one, we made a lot of the images ourselves because those are more kind of like diagram-esque. And, you know, they're maybe not quite the, you know, artistic or graphic design quality of what you would see in a, you know, professional textbook from McGraw-Hill or somewhere like that. But they're good, you know, they're aesthetically pleasing enough and good enough to get the, the teaching point across, which was really at the end of the day more the point than just looking at pretty pictures for biochemistry. And then the last bit we did, the last course we've done is histology, which we partnered with University of Colorado, the course director there uh, for histology, Dr. Lisa Lee. And she's collected this great bank of histology images. So again, you know, you can't do histology without the images, just like anatomy. So she was a great partner for us who, you know, both contributed lecture content and then also uh, you know, provide a great bank of images for us to use. So that's kind of the, what, it, what we started out with. Hold on, hold on. So when you were a medical student and studying anatomy, it kind of made sense to to put this book together because as you're putting this book together, you're also learning, right? It's a way to actively learn rather than just stare at the same images over and over. So I'm sure you were doing a ton of, but now, now you're an interventional radiology resident, are you right. being tested on histology? Is histology something that you're going to need to know for your exam? So then you are actually still doing the same thing of active learning? Or now this is like a completely separate venture? Certainly, it's, I'm not saying we we shouldn't know histology. I just, as an attending, I, I, I don't look at the slides. I'm sorry. I don't look at the slides. I just trust that the pathologist knows what they're doing. Um, you know, I'm not an academic attending, so we don't like do a biopsy and then scurry down to the the pathology lab, like during the case while we're waiting for the frozen sections, actually, because I don't do cancer anymore. So, um, but so, so, so is this something that you're actively doing as a resident or this has become kind of a business that is separate and distinct from your learning? Yeah, I think at that point it's, it's become more separate. I, I, I should say, I don't produce as much of the, the educational content anymore. Uh, the, the, the anatomy and biochemistry was kind of in the f like end of third year. And then we did a lot of it in the fourth year of medical school when, you know, you have much more free time to, to work on such things. And then the histology was kind of spread out over my intern year, which I'm not really sure how I did that when I look back on it. Cause in my intern year was pretty, I did not do one of the, I know a lot of people in radiology do those cush intern years. I did not do one of those. It was at a County hospital here in Atlanta. Um, but yeah, somehow I made that work. Um, and then now it's kind of, yeah, it's, we've moved most of the video content to YouTube. We're still in the process of doing that. So we're kind of letting YouTube do the marketing for us, if you will, because I, I just don't have the time to, you know, unfortunately to, you know, 
run a marketing campaign and do all those types of things. And I used to do some of that, like reaching out to schools and, and making partnerships and things like that. But it's, as you know, Brad, when, as you go through residency, you're kind of your priority priorities evolve. So now the majority of my time with DaVinci Academy is mostly spent on the DaVinci Hour podcast, which I mentioned we'll talk about here in a little bit, but yeah, that's kind of where more of, more of my time uh, evolves. And then the other podcast I did for a little bit, haven't really produced much episodes, which was DaVinci Cases, which was kind of along that same vein of, you know, medical education, which was a kind of USMLE style case that we put out maybe once a week, every couple of weeks uh, for a long time and was fairly popular among medical students. And that kind of just covered anatomy, physiology, and pathology. Those were uh, kind of what we looked at to cover with those. So how are you monetizing the Da Vinci Academy? You know, it took all this time and effort. It's not like you're just going to give all of this away for free. So how are you monetizing it? Yeah. So initially we, we ran it as video courses that were kind of behind a paywall. Uh, and you know, we had some success with that, but again, it takes a big marketing campaign to do something like that, to get the word out. And it's one of those, it's kind of where your priorities lie and where you can, where your bandwidth lies it really, as you get more, as I've gotten more busy clinically with residency. And so we've kind of shifted more to, thankfully we just hit a thousand subscribers on YouTube. So now we've reached that threshold where you can monetize. So we're moving things over to YouTube and kind of going that the monetization route of, of YouTube, if you will. So we're hoping to continue to grow our following uh, on YouTube in that way. So that's that's where we're hoping to monetize it. And then the books you can buy on our website uh, for varied prices, depending on if you get the digital or, or hard copy uh, version. So the ads, I'm not, I mean, this is on YouTube, but I'm not that familiar with how YouTube works. So once you hit a thousand subscribers, then you have an ability to what they just, it's just passive income, like the, like as ads play on your and you get more views, you just get income from it. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice program that YouTube set up. That yeah, as as you know, as I'm sure you've seen when you browse through YouTube, you know, you have ads for Pepsi or other brands, you know, whether major or not so major brands. And yeah, every time it's one of those is a snowball effect. The more views you get, the more subscribers you get, the more you know watch time you get, the the more money. And so yeah, YouTube takes care of you know you know, sourcing the advertisers and everything like that. And yeah, so it's become, it's much more of a, a passive income. The other way we hope to monetize it is, is there's Google ads that you can place on your website. And so we're hoping to, you know, incorporate that not to be, it's kind of a balance. We're kind of working through that still right now because you don't want to be obnoxious with it, but there's a couple education sites I've seen that they integrate it well enough that it's, you know, you notice it, but it's not obnoxious to the person who's trying to use it. So I'm not, I don't want to be one of those yeah. where a thousand pop-ups come up. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like you're driving down the road. I'm sure, I don't remember where that was. It was like Las Vegas where it's just like billboard after billboard after billboard. I think it's from like the fifties. Uh, you don't want to be that to, to people's brains. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So sorry. So, so the Da Vinci Hour podcast works to promote the Da Vinci Academy. So that's just a nice way for you to market and draw more attention organically. But what, what is the Da Vinci Hour podcast? Who are you interviewing? Uh, you know, what's the subject matter? Yeah. So the Da Vinci Hour podcast, it, it really started out with, to be really honest, was the, you know, to help, like you said, help promote the Da Vinci Academy and help draw more attention to the education content. So it was much more of a medical student focus. So I, I'm sure you can appreciate Brad, when you go in through med school, you're kind of rushed through all these rotations, you know, you know, the decision to go into like your field, for example, ENT, like my med school didn't have great exposure to that. So, you know, other med schools don't have great exposure to that. So I wanted to interview people from a variety of fields to give and ask like the real questions, like, you know, things that 
med students may be afraid to ask, like, how bad is the call? How much, how often are you on call? You know, what are the salary options? You can't ask that question. You can't ask that. You can't ask that (laughs) because they're gonna be like, you're lazy. You're not getting into our program. You know, right. Exactly. Exactly. Because you can't, as you point out, you can't ask that kind of stuff. And so, you know, because it could be taken the wrong way versus, you know, I'm in residency now. I could get away with asking that stuff. And, you know, these are often these are fields I'm not even in. So again, not to be too blunt, but I don't, I didn't really care. (laughs) So, um, and then it also started out with, they have no leverage over you. That's it. That's, I mean, that's, this is really, this such a hierarchical field that we're in where the further along you get, the more leverage you have or the left less leverage that other people have over you. And also these people who aren't in your program, they're, you know, often they're looking to promote something and that's why they want to be on your show. So yeah, they don't have, le- you know, you're not a student. They don't have leverage over you anymore. So, 100%. Yeah. So it, and it also began, you know, with my, probably my first eight or 10 guests, I'd say were people I, I knew very well, either friends of mine or, or, you know, from medical school or residency here and then, or mentors I had had in, in medical school or here. And then it kind of expanded. And what I found was I would always ask people about not just their clinical, obviously that was a main focus, especially in the beginning, but then their activities out. So I, I would ask people about their research or if they were working on a medical device or some kind of digital health uh, technology or some, a couple early guests had written a book. And so I asked them about that and they were kind of doing the book tour thing of promoting their book. And what I found was from, you know, people that would listen to it that that, uh, you know, would give me feedback. They said, hey, we really like hearing about these things kind of outside of, you know, we like hearing about the clinical practice, but what doctors are kind of doing outside of clinical practice is really interesting. And so it's really evolved to now where the way I describe it is really anyone who's making an impact on healthcare, because I don't just interview, probably most of my guests are probably still physicians, but not all of them are. So there's a lot of med tech innovators, you know, people developing either medical devices or or, uh, digital health uh, technologies and really having them walk us through, you know, because at the end of the day with such of those, what you see is the final product. You don't see the years and years that went into, you know, developing these things. And then, you know, we have another variety of guests, especially for physician entrepreneurs, how they balance that, how do they become, you know, how do they still practice and, you know, do their entrepreneurship or if they gave up their practice to do entrepreneurship, what was that decision like? You know, again, that's not something people necessarily ask them, but I think, you know, one point or another, many physicians consider, you know, leaving practice and doing something else, which I, you know, I could only imagine at this point in my career, that's, that could be a difficult decision given how much we go through to, to become physicians. So yeah, it's sometimes not, (laughs) sometimes not, you know, it's funny. It, it, you know, the dream is always like when you're a pre-med is to get into med school or the dream is, you know, once you, once you get into medical dream is residency. Then the dream is fellowship. Then the dream is, you know, the, the attending job. Once you're in that attending job, there's no other dream. So the dream becomes leaving the attending job. <laughs> it's really interesting how that, I mean, I don't want to discourage you too much as, as a resident, but it's so, it's, it's so common that like in your, that, that it, because there's no like next step, it becomes well, what can I use my medical knowledge to do to make money without seeing patients? You know, I, not not all of us, but it it's a really common theme out there. Or or what can I do so I don't have to do full time practice and can part time? So, you know, it's um, 
it's not always such a hard decision. It's not always. <laughs> I still see patients full time. I still see it. This podcast is not going to pay for my my children's college education, um, unless all y'all can get all of your friends to start listening and downloading it on all of your devices. Then maybe. But so so yeah. So uh, sometimes it's an easy decision. Sometimes it's a hard decision. But certainly, if there's some hybrid model, I think that would make a ton of people really uh, really happy. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah, you know, I get a variety of answers when I because I always, if especially if it's a physician entrepreneur, I always ask them. And and if they didn't, if they stayed practicing, I always ask them, well, why, you know, did you ever think about leaving clinical practice full time? Why did you stay doing it? Because some of these people made enough money in their other endeavors, they didn't, they theoretically didn't really need to stay practicing. It's always interesting, uh, you know, because you make a good point, you know, even doing it part time, you know, you do it more, I guess, for the, I would think for the love of it that point than necessarily the the financial gain and yeah i get a variety of answers i mean some people like you said are they said it was very difficult other people like you were saying talking about say no what they kind of reached that point in their career which i think it's an interesting point you know there's there's always that next thing there's always that next thing and you're not really working and one of my guests even brought that up who had left full-time uh who had left practice completely to go pursue other other pursuits um so yeah it's it's an interesting you know concept to think about people you know, using their medical knowledge to do these other things. So I, I think that's something I've definitely enjoyed hearing about from different people's perspectives. Yeah, it's exciting to see that there's so much out there. That there's there there's a lot that we can do in addition to just just being physicians, uh, which also applies to you because you are somehow the Da Vinci Academy, the Da Vinci Hour podcast. You're also in during residency. You're developing a medical device. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, holy cow. I, I was just trying, I was just trying to keep my head above water and you are holy cow. So tell us about the medical device. Yeah. So the medical device, I think, and again, what I'll point out with all these is I'm not, fortunately, I'm not a one man show and all, all of these things. I have great people that I've been able to work with on all these things, but yeah, the medical device is still very in the very early stages. Uh, my co-resident and I here have, have been able to secure some some grant funding with uh, some great mentors in both interventional radiology. And then fortunately here at Emory, we have Georgia Tech kind of down the road, which is a, a big engineering school uh, with a, a lot of great resources as well. So we we're collaborating with an engineer over there to use his sensor technology that he's developed with a variety of biological applications to then essentially monitor patient's dialysis access during uh, using a graph technology. So integrating sensors with graphs. So we kind of, it's a really cool, you know, thought where we, you know, integrate both, you know, this engineering technology into something we do all the time, which is vascular access and interventional radiology. So we're in the very early stages that we're working with, you know, the engineers, it's, it's kind of fun to, you know, do my clinical grind, but then have these meetings in the, in the evenings and off hours and, talk with the engineers and kind of hear their side of, you know, is this actually feasible? And then they, it's, you know, they ask for our, uh, because you'd be amazed, you know, these engineers are very, very smart people, no doubt about it, but you kind of, they don't, some of them, they, sometimes they don't know what they don't know. They, they think, you know, this would work, but then they talk with us and they realize that, you know, this isn't practical in a clinical scenario or when you're dealing with patients that have to, you know, follow this or take care of this on their own, you know, they, they don't see patients on a regular basis like we do. Yeah, they're not seeing patients all day. The fact that you see patients day in, day out, and you follow up with them on their graphs, and you check, and you're seeing that the problems are with them, and you see them in all of the um, psychosocial aspects of their lives that go into the entirety of the patient, 
right? The engineers are thinking about the graft and the access, but 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 that's it. So you you offer um, them a lot of insight, and I think physicians often we don't give ourselves enough credit for how much our expertise really matters in these times. So, okay. So can you tell me anything about this device? Like it monitors the graft. So it's implanted in the patient with the graft. And then what does it monitor? Yeah. So it's still in the early stage, so I can't get too much on the specifics of it, but I I would say what the the overall goal is, is yes, it's a graft that you, you know, use for an arteriovenous connection for dialysis access. And then within that graft, you have a sensor that basically monitors pressures within the graft. And so, you know, if it's the graft become, you know, a big problem with these grafts is then, you know, a good proportion of them fail within a, you know, 12 months out of implantation. And so, you know, as grafts fail, as I'm sure you're aware that, you know, that that's, you know, not a great scenario for the patient. It's usually an ER visit. It's always, you know, some type of advanced imaging, often angiography, and then intervention, either whether it's, uh, you know, an interventional procedure with either stenting or declotting, or even open surgery to treat it. So it's, it's not, it's not, it's a, and to have that happen in an emergent situation is both cost, you know, significant cost to the healthcare system. It's not a great experience for the patient. So what we're hoping to do is catch that early, you know, monitor this, catch it early, decrease ER visits, you know, maybe that, you know, it still develops a problem you know, either stenosis or a clot or things, but we've catch it early enough that we can do it on an outpatient basis. We can image these patients, we can treat them. They can go home the same day and go on with their lives and go back to dialysis. And we're hoping it's something we can integrate with the dialysis centers so that they, you know, they can monitor it so that we can have these patients monitored, you know, every time they get dialysis and we can have a full picture of what is going on with their access. Right. You have, you have not to use the word access overly, but you have access to these patients three times a week because they're getting their dialysis. So if there's a way to interrogate it quickly and easily, you interrogate it, okay, start the dialysis. Interrogate it, start the dialysis. And if it hits some critical number, then they know, oh, I need to follow up with my doctor in the next couple of days because it looks like it's not doing well, then this will save me a minute. So that, that's, that's really an interesting, um, in, in, interesting solution. Um, but again, because you have, you think about the patients differently, you're able to, you know, think through the whole psychosocial aspect of the, the, the problem. That's really, that's amazing. Amazing that you're, you're doing that as a resident too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great team and it's, um, you know, I'm just happy to be learning the process. I look at it almost like dual training. I'm, I'm obviously, you know, training clinically, which is the primary focus, but I've always wanted to learn the, you know, the device development process and really whether, you know, I hope, I really hope this, you know, works out and helps patients, but even if it, you know, doesn't work out for a variety of reasons, I'm learning that medical devices cannot work out. I'll at least, you know, for me, at least I've learned the, learn the process along the way, which then I can take the next, you know, idea I have down the road. Yeah. And the team, you know, sometimes you find who works well on your team and who, who doesn't work well on your team. So you can bring them to the next, uh, bring them to the next device. So what are some other things that you've learned about the, the device development process? Yeah, so it's um, it's a very long and arduous process. Um, <laughs> Sucks, I would, and I wouldn't do it again. Okay, <laughs> I would say right off the bat, and I'm again as a very, as I would call myself a novice in this this area. It's uh, if you're looking for it, like you were talking about with other you know podcasting, if you're looking at it for a way to make a ton of money, I think there's better ways to do that out there. It's kind of what some of the things you've talked about on your show, Brad, with you know real estate investing and and some other investment opportunities. I think there's better ways and less headache ways to make money out there. Um, 
So I, I think obviously there is the, you know, great financial gain out there that can happen. And that's something you actually have to consider because whether you care about making a lot of money or not, at the end of the day, what I've learned is, is even in the early phases, you have to think about how is this going to get paid for? You know, how is this going to get reimbursed? Not just for the physician, but for the hospital itself. You know, these are things that, you know, can kill a great idea, you know, if they're not thought out, you know, well. Again, like we were talking about how this integrates with, you know, in our uh, idea specifically, how it would, you know, monitoring with dialysis access, you know, where, where does this fit into the whole workflow of, you know, like you were saying, these patients get, you know, dialysis three times a week, that's three times a week we can, you know, provide monitoring versus doing monitoring at home, which, you know, it's funny, we just had a meeting last week about this where, you know, some of the consultants we were working with on this said that's a whole, as far as the regulatory aspects of that, which is a whole other, you know, rabbit hole. The regulatory aspects, if you're going to have patients monitor it themselves, is there's a whole other level to that. There's a whole other level to the development of it. So having healthcare providers provide that monitoring in those scenarios and those controlled scenarios, uh, we learned is, is, is at least initially the better route to go. So yeah, I think real, what I've learned so far is that even though you know you want to focus on the idea and the technology. You really have to think about some of these. It may, as ridiculous as it may seem, you have to think about these end, you know, end product things. Where you know, where does this fit into the whole workflow? Where does it fit into reimbursement? Where does it fit into you know? It can't just be anymore, unfortunately, because the physician likes it or they think it's cool or it makes their job easier. Unfortunately, they don't care about us enough. It's it's got a the best the best the home run out there. The holy grail is one that the physician likes. It improves workflow. It improves outcomes, obviously, and then it saves the hospital a lot of money or the healthcare yeah. system. I mean, a that's lot of money. that's yeah, that's who are you saving money? Because whoever you're saving money is the one who's going to have to pay for it. So then you got a whole think of it the whole economic aspect of it. Okay, this is how many grafts per year fail. This is how much money an admission costs. Actually, admissions make the hospital money. So mm, you're cutting those out. Hospital is going to make less money. Maybe you're going to have to pitch it a little differently. You know, the, the health insurers are the one who's paying for the hospital stays. So they're the ones that are going to pay for the device. You're going to have to pitch it to them because they're the ones that are going to have to reimburse for it. Okay, we're going to save you this amount of money per year per graft. And yeah, sorry. Absolutely. Just, sure. Take that idea for free. No problem. I will. <laughs> my, my normal consulting fee, I will waive. Um, so, so what about the device development process? Uh, um, like who's paying for this? Who's paying for for the device development. Oh yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, the funding is always, it, it's, uh, it's always the, you know, the million dollar question, if you will. In our case, fortunately, we've been able to secure some grant funding through the school of medicine here. The school of medicine provides, they have this, you know, uh, grant fund that I think various donors have donated to that they, you know, have, you know, basically you compete within the Emory system and you submit, you know, proposals. And fortunately ours, ours were selected for, uh, two grants now to help fund this project and, you know, bring it further, uh, bring it, you know, to the next steps with, you know, funding something that's always on the back of your mind. We're, 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 we're okay where we are right now, but we have, we're, we have some plans coming up to hopefully apply for some more grants. Uh, Cause I mean, these things, each, each level you get to in this process, it just gets more and more expensive. <laughs> and then, and then uh, Striker is, or Medtronic, they're going to find you. They're going to buy you and then you'll decide whether you want to continue practicing medicine or not, because, uh, you know, you've already, you've already private equity has decided <laughs> to, to, 
to buy your product. Um, so, so actually, that's the next question, right? Who owns the product? Because when you're in a residency program, you're an employee of the university. You're using their resources. I would think the intellectual property is theirs, not yours. So how, does, how is that working for you? No, that's a key question. That's that's something I ask a lot of my other guests uh, on my podcast about as well. With the, the as far as the how to protect your intellectual property, who owns it, and you're absolutely right, Brad. In the in the university setting, it obviously varies, you know, university to university. But you know, Emory owns the majority of our intellectual property. We do own some of it, fortunately, um, but we don't. You know, we don't own the majority of it. I would say. Uh, so even you're gonna have to work. You're you are gonna have to see patients. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think they'll be, you know, signing into this podcast years from now from my island of the Bahamas, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but nevertheless, you know, we'll, we'll own a piece of it uh, per se, but yeah, I think, you know, obviously if you're out in private practice, the benefit of that is, as you know, and again, it depends on the contract you sign, you know, there I've, I've heard of some practices out there where they, they want to stake of what you're, what you're working on. I, I, you know, there's different viewpoints on that, you know, they, and you know whether you own and then i've heard other deals where the practice doesn't really care you own you know pretty much 100 percent of what you what you what you do outside of out of the work out of the workplace um and so yeah those are kind of as far as i know they're really the two the other ones where you can get really nailed is if you work for like a corporation that does you know if you i guess leave medicine altogether and do you know device development at one of these big companies you know well then that's your job yeah yeah. i mean that's what you're being paid for that's what your salary is is paying for you to develop the devices your your resident salary is not paying for you to develop this device it's paying for you to all of the responsibilities that you're hopefully not shirking in order to develop your device i'm sure not right you're what you're doing is above and beyond so that, that makes sense you're working for a company that's what they're paying you to do Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas with private practice, you know, I'm in private practice and honestly, I don't know. I don't know if I was to start developing device, what, what would happen? I'd have to go back and look at my contrast because it's nothing, it's nothing that I do, but you know, it also might be on a case by case basis, right? Like if we wanted someone to work for us who, or work with us, who has this background, they might be able to convince the powers that be to carve something out so they can continue to have an incentive to continue doing it. And I would guess that despite what you, what they may say to you initially, like there's, you know, we're talking about leverage, there's leverage there to negotiate that. So, you know, they keep a percent or something, but still incentivize you enough to join them and produce, uh, you know, if that's, if that's where your interests lie. So keep that in mind, you know, when you're, uh, when you're applying for, uh, for, for jobs. So, so if people are interested in your podcast, if people are interested in um, learning histology and anatomy from you, um, where can they find the YouTube channel? Where can they find the podcast? Yeah. So the, the podcast is just the, the Da Vinci hour. And you, so you can search that really any major, you know, podcast platform, Spotify, Apple podcasts, the video portion goes up on our YouTube channel, which is uh, YouTube top youtube.com. Uh, at Da Vinci Academy Med, M-E-D. Uh, so that's where you can find our, our channel. Our website is www.dviacademy.com. 
and yeah, we, we try to put out episodes every week or so every, you know, depends on what my schedule is. I was hoping to put an episode out this week, but I don't think it's going to happen to be honest with you. <laughs> it's going to have to get pushed to next week. <laughs> we, uh, we better hop to it then. We better hop to it. <laughs> All right, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, DaVinci Hour Podcast, DaVinci Academy, and device developer extraordinaire. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brad. Really enjoyed it. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.